Welcome to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. Thanks for joining us. For the past 10 years, Soul Force has been using the nonviolent tactics preached by Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. to try to change the hearts and minds of those who believe gays and lesbians should be excluded from church and denied equal rights in society. This year, Soul Force has a lot on its plate, and Executive Director Jeff Lutz gives us the details. The virgin birth, Jesus' literal resurrection, the miracles performed by Jesus, even the existence of the 12 disciples. There's no Christian doctrine off limits to John Shelby Spong. His new book is no exception. We'll find out about Jesus for the non-religious. But first, we hope you'll join us on March 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time for the second part of a two-part teleseminar on the Bible and homosexuality. The seminar on the New Testament and homosexuality will be hosted by myself and Reverend Paul Turner, the senior pastor at Gentle Spirit Christian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Participants will get a packet of notes and other material, including an opportunity to download the audio of the call afterward. There is a suggested donation of just $5 to whosoever to join the teleseminar, and we hope you'll support our work in this way while we support your need for spiritual growth. Growth and education. If you're listening to this podcast after March 4th, you can still order the audio of all of our past teleseminars and get details on how to register for upcoming seminars. Go to whosoever.org slash seminars. Soul Force is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. While that's certainly a milestone to be celebrated, it also shows just how entrenched anti-gay forces are within the church and society. Even though some progress has been made in the past decade within many denominations and in some parts of our country, the battle is far from over. Soul Force has a lot of programs and actions planned for this year. I recently talked with Soul Force Executive Director Jeff Lutz, who says he's optimistic now that a new crop of evangelicals are emerging as leaders. Force is really aware that um, the landscape is changing a bit in terms of evangelical leaders. Uh, you know, this past year in 2007, not only did Jerry Falwell pass away, but D. James Kennedy as well, James Dobson, and um, Pat Robertson are still going strong, but they're older. And there seems to be a new crop of what many people refer to as the emerging evangelical leaders and their megachurches. And um, although theologically they tend to be uh, pretty conservative and the same uh, when it comes to LGBT people, uh, they're still opposed to us, they tend to be less divisive. And so we hope that they'll be open to some dialogue. And so we've created something called the American Family Outing, we're uh, in the process of re- recruiting families who will visit six megachurches between Mother's Day and Father's Day. We want to show them our mothers and our fathers and our families. We're recruiting uh, same-gender couples with and without children. Uh, we're recruiting single parents, uh, heterosexual allies uh, with or without children, and also just single folks that uh, may want to do this with a member of their extended family. So a single LGBT person could grab a mom or a sister or an aunt or an uncle. Uh, You know, there's lots of different ways that we form family, and we want to show those off and 
we plan to visit those churches. We've written them. Um, we'll be starting a process of negotiating with them soon what it will look like. We hope to share a meal together, worship together, and still have some structured dialogue about faith, family, and, and sexuality, and hopefully a few minds and hearts in the process. So we're going places like Joel Olstein's Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, P.D. Jake's The Potter House in Dallas, Texas, um, Bishop Harry Jackson in his church in Maryland, um, Bishop Eddie Long outside of Atlanta, uh, Bill Hybels and Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago, and finally on Father's Day we'll end at Dr. Rick Warren's Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. So that'll be fun and powerful and um, we just believe that the, the Spirit will be with us and create the kind of conversations that we need to have to affect some change. What do you think um, will come out of this? Or do you, do you think that, that they might soften their rhetoric or, or just not attack their gay-listening people at all? You know, really this is just designed to begin changing hearts and minds. What we're, what we're told in many of these mega churches uh, is that uh, currently, uh, some of them anyway, have uh, a number of gay and lesbian people who attend there because the music is great and the video productions are huge and powerful and they enjoy the worship and they're welcomed in the worship service. The, the problem seems to be whenever a, an LGBT person tries to become uh, more of a member or take on um, any kind of role in the life of the church. If they wanted to teach Sunday school or head up a committee or, um, uh, you know, become a deacon or some kind of church leader, when it's required that their identity would take sort of a, a heightened uh, visibility, that's when they run into trouble and are told, no, I'm sorry, we can't uh, let you do that. And so we just really believe that that's, uh, um, a shame because that church is missing out on the gifts that LGBT people can bring to the church. Mm-hmm. And we also think it's another, yet another uh, way in which even the softer, gentler churches are telling our folks that they are second class and sick and sinful. And so we just hope to cause a little bit of gentle cognitive dissonance. Um, real parents, real families meeting and breaking bread together. You know, we, we doubt that we're going to cause a major theological shift in one conversation or one weekend. But, you know, the Spirit works in surprising ways, and sometimes this may be the first link in a series of, of, of things that link together and cause a chain reaction uh, that could affect change within the congregation and within the church. I also see that uh, Soul Force is marking its 10th anniversary um, with a direct action at the United Methodist General Conference. When, when is that happening and, and what is happening? The, the Methodist Conference is from Wednesday, April 23rd through Friday of the following week, which I believe is May 2nd. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want uh, Soul Forcers there throughout the whole weekend, uh, through the whole week. But our particular focus is the weekend of April 25th through the 27th. Mm-hmm. And on Friday night, April 25th, we're going to kick things off with um, a celebration. Before we get busy with direct action at the Methodist Conference, we're just going to gather and um, 
spend a little time reconnecting new Soul Forcers with uh, original Soul Forcers and also watching some video of the 10 years. And it ought to be a, a really great time for uh, both um, old-timers and new-timers to, to come together and, and be a part of that. So we're excited about it. It's hard to believe that it's been... 10 years uh, since SoulForce got its start. Well, and SoulForce also has a new uh, resource available, a 36-page book that written by, by you called What the Science Says and Doesn't Say About Homosexuality. What is this book about? Well, you know, um, my other life is I'm a <laughs> psychotherapist in private practice and have been doing that for coming up on 20 years now. And a few years ago, Mel wrote a very popular SoulForce booklet entitled What the Bible Says and Does Not Say About Homosexuality. And uh, that has been incredibly popular. We've, we've given it out uh, during some of our direct actions. People order it like crazy off the website. Mm-hmm. It's very helpful in, in terms of those who want to understand what the Bible does and doesn't say. And usually the second question is, what does the research say about LGBT people? And since that's my field, I decided to really write a summary, and it's around uh, the 10 most commonly asked questions about LGBT people, and it's research-based responses to each of those questions, things like, is it a choice, is it a mental disorder or a pathology, Um, are we good at raising children, do our relationships last, why do people come out, Uh, those kinds of things, and so it's, it's useful and interesting to see what the research has to say about all of that. In the fall, Soul Force will hold its third equality ride as Soul Force Q youth visit various college campuses around the country. To learn more about all of Soul Force's upcoming events and how you can either volunteer or contribute to their activities, visit their website at soulforce.org. Spong, the former bishop of Newark for the Episcopal Church, is a polarizing figure. For decades, his books have chipped away at the orthodoxy of Christianity. He's questioned everything from the virgin birth to Jesus' literal resurrection to whether Jesus even died for our sins. Some believe he's trying to destroy Christianity, but Spong believes he's saving Christianity from those who would destroy it with blind faith and literalism. His new book, Jesus for the Non-Religious, takes on all of these subjects of orthodoxy and more. Instead of Tearing the doctrines apart, however, he puts them into context and extracts a new vision of Jesus, not as a sacrificial lamb for the remission of sins, but as a fully divine and fully human being that we can seek to emulate. I spoke with Bishop Spong by phone from his home in Newark, New Jersey. In his book, the bishop writes, I insist that there must be a way to be both a believer and a citizen of the 21st century. I asked him what he meant by that. Well, the Christian faith was born in the first century. When people didn't know anything about germs or viruses or coronary occlusions or tumors or leukemia. Mm-hmm. Born in a world that people assumed was the center of a three-tiered universe, that God lived just above the sky, God was understood quite anthropomorphically. None of those concepts make a lot of sense today, and so when we in the 21st century read our biblical story, we read about about uh, a virgin birth, which they didn't know there was such a thing as an egg cell in a woman so that that becomes inoperative. 
you read about Jesus thinking epilepsy is caused by demon possession. Uh, none of those things make a lot of sense. So, so you've got to find a way. Either you either literalize it, which fundamentalists do, mm-hmm. or you uh, pun it, which the secular humanist world has done. Or you try to find what's the experience that lies behind that first century explanation and see if you can translate that experience into 21st century words. And that's what I think the ultimate task of the Christian faith is today. Well, in the first part of your book, you take on those topics, virgin birth, the miracle stories, the crucifixion, the resurrection, even even whether the disciples uh, actually uh, existed. And um, you take them out of their literal context. Why can't we not take these at, at their face value? Well, because I don't think the authors intended them to be read literally. When, when St. Matthew writes his story of the birth narrative of Jesus, he quotes the Bible about five times. He quotes Micah to demonstrate why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. He quotes Isaiah to determine why Jesus was born of a virgin. He quotes Hosea to determine that... Uh, that the flight of Jesus and Mary and Joseph into Egypt was the fulfillment of Scripture. He quotes Jeremiah about the children uh, weeping, or the mothers weeping, Rachel weeping for her children who have been slaughtered by Herod. And he and he quotes an unnamed source, which we aren't able to find, about why Jesus should wind up living in Nazareth. Not one of those texts was written for that purpose. When Hosea wrote, Out of Egypt have I called my son, he's talking about the life of the people of the nation Israel, not talking about Jesus. And when Isaiah said that a woman, uh, well, Matthew interpreted to to read, a virgin will conceive, the text actually says a woman is with child, and that must, you must recognize that's quite different, that even Matthew knew that those texts didn't fit. He also uh, was he was also writing that book in a in a context of a Jewish synagogue, where he could lean on these stories from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, and the people would know what he was talking about. And he didn't plan to take those things literally. He knows that Herod going down to Bethlehem to kill all the Jewish babies is a Moses story because the Pharaoh went down to Egypt. He's paralleling Jesus with Moses. He knows that Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount. He's paralleling Jesus with Moses at that point. He models the Sermon on the Mount after Psalm 119. Jesus didn't do that. Uh, You know, and and so you go on and on and on. The authors knew that they were were creating interpretations of the power of a man named Jesus of Nazareth. The same is true when you get to the New Testament. The Abraham-Sarah story reappears in the Zechariah-Elizabeth story. Uh, the babies that leap in the womb of Rebecca, Isaac's wife, reappears as the story of the baby leaping in Elizabeth's womb to salute the baby in Mary's womb to prove that Jesus was superior to John the Baptist even before they were born. Those authors weren't incompetent, ignorant people. They knew that they were writing in this particular style. It's only when Christianity left the Jewish world and became a Gentile religion that we began to read these stories without any Jewish background and we began to literalize them and they are they are nonsensical in a literal fashion. If I had not been able to escape my biblical fundamentalism of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, I was our home was literally one block from Billy Graham's home and it was the same worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I hadn't been able to escape that, I would have left the Christian faith a long time ago because I cannot bend my mind into a first century pretzel in order to be a Christian. But if there's a way that I can be a Christian 
with full intellectual competence and study the scriptures as the scriptures I believe were intended to be written and read and understood then it opens a whole new arena for me and and it's one that I, I literally love and want to walk into the Bible has been used throughout history for so many evil purposes mm-hmm. you know, it's been used to uphold fundamentalism it's been used to denigrate women it's been used to encourage hostility toward gay and lesbian people it's been used to justify war it's been used to oppose the rise of democracy it's been used to support slavery how could anybody take that book at face value and treat it with seriousness when you know that that's been its history if you read it literally you can justify every one of those prejudices I grew up justifying each of those prejudices with literal quotations so, so what you're saying in this book is that we really have to go back to our Jewish roots because the the writers um, of the Gospels, in their in their Jewishness, were actually writing in a form of writing that that was familiar to them, and and the idea of quote unquote history really was foreign to them. And they were writing that in a synagogue. Mm-hmm. The Gospels are liturgical documents; they're not historical or biographical documents. They were designed to enable the Christian community, who were still Jews, to tell Jesus' stories against the background of the scripture lessons read in the synagogue, and that happened over and over again for about 40 years before the Gospels were finally written, the first of the Gospels was finally written. There's a great gap that most people don't seem to understand. Jesus died in 30, according to our best estimates. The first Gospel is not written any earlier than 70. you got 40 years where the story of Jesus has to be traveling through oral transmission and that could only have happened in the synagogue because by the time the gospels appear uh, Jesus is deeply wrapped in the Jewish scriptures and that's the only place people heard the scriptures read they didn't have a Gideon society put a Bible in your (laughs) motel room they were enormously expensive individuals didn't own Bibles or scriptures they were they were the community's property but see we've we've lost all of that I remember having a TV program with a late night uh, talk host named Tom Snyder mm-hmm. yeah. died about a year ago and Tom Snyder was raised a Roman Catholic and and I've forgotten what book I was touring with when he booked me but I was on his program and I was talking about the dates of the Gospels 70 for Mark, maybe 82 for Matthew, maybe 90 or so for Luke and close to 100 for John and he immediately interrupted me and said, wait a minute, Bishop, I just got out my little short pencil and started to do some figuring. That means they weren't written by eyewitnesses. And I said, of course mm-hmm. they weren't, Tom. They're the, second, they're the product of a second and third generation of Christians. They're written in Greek, a language that neither Jesus nor his disciples spoke. And he said, well, that's not what the nuns taught me. And I said, what they teach you, Tom? And he said, they taught me that the nuns followed Jesus around and wrote down everything he said until we get the Gospels. Well, I said, Tom, did they tell you that the nuns use ballpoint pens and spiral notes? <laughs> that's the assumption. It is. You know, those the ink was terribly expensive. Quills were hard to find. Very few people wrote. Not 1% of the population in the first century could write. And yet we don't factor those things in when we read the scriptures. I just finished reading a book by Pope Benedict XVI, mm-hmm. and it is abysmally ignorant of New Testament, basic New Testament understandings. He thinks that Jesus literally delivered all of the farewell discourses in John's Gospel. Well, they weren't they weren't created until about the turn of the second <laughs> century. And, you know, I just can't understand how a man of his stature could get away with publishing a book that is so biblically illiterate that it's laughable. 
surely some Roman Catholic biblical scholars might have helped him before he made an absolute fool of himself, which yeah. this book does. Well, we can't imagine a world without the Internet, so, you know. <laughs> that's correct. Well, see, well, that's just one more yeah. illustration of the, the fact that you've got to read the biblical story in the context in which they were written, and that means the earth was the center of a three-tiered universe. Mm-hmm. God lived just above the sky. The primary thing God did was keep record books up to date. God intervened periodically. Uh, folks today don't really believe that God can intervene to stop the hurricane before it yeah. hits New Orleans. Uh, you know, it's you, you, even though people might have prayed, it didn't happen. People prayed before the airplanes went into the World Trade Center at 9-11, but right. that didn't stop them. Prayers don't seem to stop the tsunami. It's caused by a tectonic uh, collision, and it's not caused by God wanting to punish the people of the Indian Ocean because they were sinful. That's the way we used to interpret that stuff. And, you know, Jerry Falwell went on Pat Robertson's program and said that 9-11 was caused because... The United States now treated gays fairly and right. women uh, equal and had something called the American Civil Liberties Union and all these things, and that's why uh, God has punished us. Pat Robertson suggested that the hurricane might have been caused because Ellen DeGeneres lived yeah. from from New Orleans. And yeah. he finally denied that he said that, and he says, oh, God's going to send an earthquake to Hollywood because that's where she is now. <laughs> What's the difference? You know, I wouldn't bother to deny it. That's a mentality that no educated person can can pay much attention to. One of the things that distresses me about the Bush administration is that these are not stupid people. I'm not sure about the president, but his advisors <laughs> aren't stupid. But uh, they have simply manipulated the, the fundamentalist vote in this country for their own sinister purposes. Right. Uh, they do fan the flames of homophobia. They fan the flames of uh, really sexual license. That's what they're fan. Mm-hmm. They talk about abortions because you, if you do it, you're supposed to pay the price. Right. And if you get out from paying the price, that means you might do it more frequently. That's what's really behind uh, at least the Protestant op- opposition to abortion. So why is it so hard, though, for Christianity to let go of these creeds and doctrines? What, what is really at the root of their fear? I think that, that religion primarily is an attempt to help people find security, not to help people find truth. Mm. And so they have rooted their security in these symbols. And until somebody can present them with another view of God in which they might invest their lives, they will cling to this because they don't know any other. They think if the fundamentalistic or literal point of view disappears, they think that they fall into a bottomless pit. And God is a part of the human security system. Right. It always has been. And you say early on in your book that this is sort of first-year seminary stuff, and it really is. Why do you think preachers are so reluctant to to share this knowledge? It's a tough profession. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's a volunteer association. They're not well paid in the first place. They have little or no job security. They've got wives and children to support. Uh, I think they try when they come out of seminar, and I think they give up in about a year or so because Mm. they've disturbed people, and it takes a while, and it takes a lot of grace. Usually, uh, people come out of seminar, and they preach their seminary notes for the first three or four years, and then they finally begin to make it their own. And by the time they make it their own, they've been so uh, brainwashed by the culture, especially if they live in South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> you know, up, up here, the real issue is not that. Up here, the real issue is that, by and large, the secular New York population doesn't give two hoots about organized religion. 
and it's not that they're rejecting fundamentalism. They just reject the whole thing. They yeah. And, and so it's a very different sort of audience. And what you have to do here is to convince them not that the old Bible stories are correct, but what you got to convince them of is that the concept of God might be worth pursuing. Hmm. It's a very different world. That is a very different world, because here we're all about the, the literalization of the virgin birth and the miracle stories, and if you don't believe that, then you're not a Christian. That's right, and uh, the fact is that the virgin birth story doesn't appear in the New Testament until the ninth decade when Matthew writes, Paul never heard of it, Mark never heard of it, and John omits it, So, and I can't hmm. believe he didn't hear of it. So you got three out of the five writers of the New Testament that don't affirm the literal virgin birth, but that doesn't enter people's minds because they've, they've read the Bible as a collage. They've blended right. it long before. Now, you can't go to a Christmas pageant in any church without seeing the stories blended, and they're very mm-hmm. incompatible stories. Mm-hmm. And in Matthew's story of the birth, the family lives in Bethlehem, and so Matthew has to develop a story as to why he is called Jesus of Nazareth. In Luke's story, he lives in Nazareth, so Luke has to develop a story as about why they happened to be in Bethlehem when the baby was born. <laughs> All you have to do is look at those stories. That didn't take a genius. Just compare them. But no, nobody compares them because we primarily have assumed this blending process. Well, and here in the South, it, it really is. The preacher said, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. I mean, there really isn't an encouragement to actually read the text. That's very, that's very true. Well, they isn't in the Roman Catholic Church either. Let me play devil's advocate here for a minute. What do you say to those who say, well, you're not a Christian because you don't believe all of these things literally? Well, I'd say that's a very strange definition of Christianity. Uh, fundamentalism's not that old. Uh, the kind of fundamentalism that you're dealing with in the South and that I grew up with is really a, a response to Charles Darwin. It's a 19th, uh, an early 20th century thing. That's when the people published the five fundamentals and began the mm-hmm. Tractarian movement that, that we get the word from. And they, that's when they began to say that the only way you can be a Christian is that you believe in the literal virgin birth, you believe in the blood atonement, you believe in the physical resurrection, you believe that every word of the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and there was, oh, the second coming is, is real and historical. Those were the five fundamentals. After putting all of that into context and taking it out of its literal context, you, you do move on to, to uh, give us a new Christology, a new well, view you do. of Christ. If you Christ. don't move on, I see no reason to bother with the Bible. That's true. <laughs> and there's something powerful to me about the life of this Jesus. But his power is not in being a, a divine figure masquerading as a human being and walking on this earth. His power in, is that his humanity is so full and complete that God can live in him and through him. That's a really powerful story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the church was trying to say 2,000 years ago when it said, you know, he's fully human, and yet we experience the divine God in him and through him. And so they wound up saying he's fully human and he's fully God. And, you know, we literalize that, and that doesn't make a lot of sense today. You can't really be fully human if you literalize the virgin birth story. There's no way you can be fully human and have the Holy Spirit be your father. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the ultimate affirmation of the Christian church was that in and through his full humanity, the fullness of God had been met and engaged. And I still think that's a pretty powerful story. Yeah. And I think we can tell that in a modern way. Well, and you talk a little bit about the the root of Christian anger. I mean, I think we see a lot of that. So what is at the root of of Christian anger? I think the way we've told the Jesus story, we denigrate human life every day. Hmm. You know, know, Jesus died for my sins. What does that say? 
that says that I am one wretched, miserable creature who caused the death of Jesus. How do you live with that? Mm. Well, you live with that by, by passing that anger on to somebody else. That's why Christianity's always had a victim. Uh, the homosexuals are simply the present victim of the Christian church. But if you go back, it's been women, it's been blacks, it's been heretics, it's been scientists, it's been Jews. Mm-hmm. They've always had a victim. Because if you are told constantly in church how deprived, depraved, fallen, helpless, hopeless you are, the only way you can stand up is to find somebody upon whom you can pass on that negativity. And so we have preachers that are constantly getting their jollies out of describing how people are burning in hell. Yep. Why does that make people have fun? Yeah. You know, why does that make anybody feel good? If, if you really took that literally, it would break your heart and you'd be weeping all the time. Uh, but that's, you know, it's, it's God is his punishing parent up in the sky. And in, in the South, uh, it's what I, and people in the South understand it, it's what I call the woodshed theory of the atonement. Mm-hmm. If you don't grow up in the South, you don't know what happened when you got taken out to the woodshed. To the woodshed, oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the, the idea is that I've been a bad boy, you've been a bad girl, God's going to punish us. He mm-hmm. takes us out to the woodshed to lay the wrath of his strap upon our backs. And the moment the strap lands, Jesus steps in and God beats Jesus instead of me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not good news. Yeah, uh, that doesn't make you feel good. That makes you feel terrible, and so you you find a victim where you can project this stuff. So that until we heal that that very deep fissure in the Christian tradition, I think Christianity will always be uh, dumping its prejudices upon the victim of choice. Uh, mm-hmm. And right now, the gay people are a popular victim. Sure the are. Church is torn up, uh, yep. trying to condemn gay people and and wants to excommunicate the rest of us that don't condemn gay people. If the Christian church gets to that place, you know, I can't imagine a Christian church excommunicating any child of God. And the Jesus I know uh, says no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been, you are the object of my love. Mm -hmm. That's a very different story from the one I hear from pulpits. But you say that a, a, an argued prejudice is a dying prejudice. So Absolutely. At least we wouldn't be debating homosexuality if it weren't dying, because what yeah. happens is that every prejudice depends upon a definition that justifies it. The definition that justifies prejudice toward gay people is that homosexuality is a moral choice that people make because they're either mentally sick or morally depraved. Mm-hmm. And that argument, nobody believes that today. Uh, nobody in, in science or medicine believes that today. Yeah. So the definition is dying. So that's why we're having a debate about it. Now, do you think that definition is going to be revived? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. That definition is going to die. We had the same definition. The reason women couldn't vote until 1920 was we defined women as intellectually incapable of making that kind of decision. Right. The reason blacks were able to be enslaved is we defined black people as subhuman. Even in wartime, we don't, we can't kill uh, Iraqi human beings. We've got to kill terrorists, right. Al Qaeda people. You've got to dehumanize your victims before you can kill them. And uh, in World War II, we killed Krauts and mm-hmm. Nips. We didn't kill Japanese boys and husbands and German boys and husbands. We killed evil people, Nazis. Who is this God that that we meet in Jesus? If it's not this God that reaches down and well, rescues us and sacrifices His Son. Big question. <laughs> the first thing you need to recognize is that the word God is a human word, and the definition that we ascribe to that word is a human definition. 
There was a wonderful Greek philosopher named Xenophanes who said if horses had gods, they would look like horses. Mm -hmm. We have created God in our image because that's we can't do anything other. You can't get outside what it means to be a human being. A horse can't get outside what it means to be a horse. A horse can't tell you what it means to be human. But we human beings think we can tell folks what it means to be gods. Mm. First thing we've got to do is recognize that all of our God talk is human talk about human projections onto the divine. And I think you can't do that. I think we've got to stop playing that game. I don't believe God can ever be explained or defined. I think God can only be experienced. And then you never know quite what it is you're experiencing, but you have the sense of... You know, language betrays our inability, but you have a sense of transcendence, you have a sense of otherness, you have a sense of a surging power of life, you have a sense of the, the meaning of love, you you have a sense of what Paul Tillich called the ground of being. Mm -hmm. You can experience those things, I think, and then you have to face the fact, am I delusional? Am I experiencing things that I have created because I need to experience them? Or is there a reality out there that that I, as a human being, have a capacity to tap into, to experience, to, to commune with. Well, I think there is. That's why I'm a Christian. But, but it's not going to be an old man in the sky who's going to do a miracle. Yeah. And so I've got to find a whole new way to talk about the God experience. And that's why I think you look at Jesus, and the God experience in Jesus, I think, is seen in the fullness of his life and his infinite capacity to love and even to give his life away and in his ability to be all that he could be. And so you say, you know, there's something about this guy that brings God to me. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But the old theistic God, the old theistic God actually died in the 17th century. Uh, Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo took away his dwelling place and Isaac Newton took away his modus operandi when Isaac <laughs> Newton began to show us how the world operated. There's very little room in that world for miracle and magic when he gets through. So you've got to project God as a divine interfering be being. And once you define God as a supernatural interfering force, then you've got to explain why God didn't intervene mm -hmm. all the times. God, why didn't he stop the tsunami? Why didn't he stop the hurricane? Yeah. Why didn't he, he stop like, the Holocaust? You know, yeah, yeah. the Holocaust. What? Well, maybe yeah. God doesn't like Jews. And that's yeah. Why let the, maybe God doesn't <laughs> like poor black people. There you go. <laughs> and, uh, so you get into an absolute absurdity when somebody yeah. tells me that that their mother or their wife or their husband is alive today because people prayed. Mm -hmm. I always am happy. You know, I'm really glad that their husband's alive or your mother's alive. But I want to ask you about all those other people who prayed and their husbands didn't live, or yeah. their wives didn't live, or their mothers didn't live. Does God like your mother better than somebody else's mother? That becomes something that's really difficult to answer. And then people fly off and say, well, it's a mystery. <laughs> and, uh, you know, human beings will never know why God. But by God, when we make that kind of claim that I prayed and therefore God intervened and saved my loved one, we are saying that God is capable of doing that. And so if God is not going to do that, God must be demonic, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, not exactly the place I think you want to come out. We have a daughter who did three tours. She was a Marine. She did three tours of war in Mr. Bush's Iraqi campaign. Wow. 21 months over there, three seven-month tours. And Bill O'Reilly, on an interview, asked me if I prayed, and I said, yes, Bill, I pray. And he said, does it work? And I said, well, let me tell you, I've got a daughter in Iraq. She's a helicopter pilot. She's been in combat 
for 21 months. Of course I pray for her because I love her. But do you think that I believe that it, because I pray, if a ground-to-air missile hits her plane, her, air, her helicopter, that the helicopter's not going to come down? Mm-hmm. Do you think she'll have a soft landing? Mm-hmm. Well, if I believe that, I'd have to say, well, the reason those 4,000 kids over there that got killed was that nobody prayed for them. Mm. That's a funny kind of God. You know, you, that's not the world I live in. It's, it's not the faith I can believe. And, and I'm sort of tired of, of dealing with hysterical, insecure, and dreadfully uninformed Christians. I have a responsibility to love them. Yeah. And as Daniel Moynihan said, everybody is welcome to their own opinion. <laughs> but nobody's welcome to their own facts. Right. These people begin to present stuff as if they're facts. Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to be challenged. I'm embarrassed by what goes for Christianity in this country. You know, to be a Christian today means that you're in favor of keeping Terry Schiavo alive mm-hmm. and you're opposed to homosexual people. And, and I don't want to be identified with that kind of Christianity. For more information on Bishop Spong and to subscribe to his newsletter, visit johnshelbyspong.com. Thank you for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org. Or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Kiraly. Other music included samples from Janoon and Minstrel Spirit, all available from magnitude.com. If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups that you can join for fun and support. You can find Whosoeverans in your area when you join our Rainbow Fish groups. If you want to know more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. If you're enjoying our podcast, we hope that you'll make a monetary donation to our ministry. It does take money to produce and broadcast this program and, of course, to keep our ministry on the web. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate, or you can send checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina, 29021. Whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit, that means all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for joining us. May God bless you until we meet again.